Bonjour, bonjour, bonjour. Welcome to the SBS Cycling Podcast. I'm Christophe Malen, I'm your host. And joining me is the magnificent, El Magnifico, Dave McKenzie. How are you, Dave? I, I don't know who pays you to say those things, mate, but just keep that love coming. I love it. It's good to be here. And again, good to be in the SBS studio. Is it? I, I'm, here every, uh, I'm, here, I'm here quite often, so... You're meant, you're, you're, you have to say you love it, mate. Yeah, I love right? it. I love it. Uh, joining us is Chloe Hoskin. How are you, Chloe? I'm good, thank you. Thanks for having me. And it's almost definitely Macca who pays you to say those things. <laughs> you know me too yeah, well, Chloe. I, I'm so cheap as well, so it's, uh, he can still afford it. Just nothing. It's a, it's yeah. He asks for a um, skim milk um, soy latte. That's all. That's all he asks, yeah. Chloe. So. I don't have to pay much, although yeah. Melbourne prices are pretty <laughs> Yeah, excellent. I was going to say, that is pretty pricey, actually. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Chloe, good to have you on the podcast. First of all, I should apologize on the, the whole of the French contingency. I know you, you had a bit of a, uh, not such a great story with France. We'll <sighs> delve into it. Uh, so my sincere apologies from, uh, on behalf of uh, anyone respectable in France. Um, apology accepted. I, I do have to say, I was in an elevator full of French riders, at the Cadell Evans race earlier in the year. And um, I don't know, something happened and I said, F the French. <laughs> <laughs> they, all understood. they all understood. They all understood. For context, I think, for our listeners, we should, for those who don't know, um, you were, you'd signed on the dotted line for a French team, as had uh, a lot of uh, male cyclists around the world for the equivalent in the men's squad. B&B Hotel. B&B Hotels. One squad's called B&B Hotel Both squads fell over and probably is not a bad sort of lead into discussion point because it's not the first time this has happened, is it, Chloe, in professional cycling, both men and or women's. Um, you're now on the other side of the fence. What it's like? What What is it like for you looking through the lens on the other side of the fence and at, in the business side of the sport? Well, it wasn't just riders that were affected either. Of course, there were a lot of staff that were affected. It was really a, a very bad situation that was very poorly managed. And as you said, it's not the first time it's happened in um, professional cycling. Uh, it does seem to be a particularly volatile sport in the nature of how it's set up with um, sponsors and essentially contract-based and we know that uh, contracts are only as good as those who, you know, respect them and these weren't respected. So what does life look like on the other side? Well, um, I won't sugarcoat it. It was definitely, you know, I raced professionally for 13 years. It was a, um, a big transition to know two weeks out from what I thought were going to be two seasons racing with a French team that my career was over or potentially over. Um, and I did get some contract offers from other professional teams, but they were just so far below what I thought was my market value that I really stepped back and said, where, where can I have the biggest impact in the sport? And, you know, I, I've been in cycling for a really long time. I'm very grateful to the sport. I think it's a really powerful mechanism to bring people together and... I think it's a like it's just a great thing for people to do, and I thought that where I could have the biggest impact was actually staying in Canberra, finishing my law degree, and trying to put myself in a position that would be able to help athletes if they were ever in a situation like I was in the future. Mm -hmm. 
And let's not dwell too long about it. And we talk about positivity and the future and so on. But just, and I don't really want to take you back there necessarily, but did you think at that time that you, you could sit out a year and maybe come back? Did you still have this, this impression that maybe you could just take a little pause and, and, and come back? Or did you know by then that maybe that was, that was the end of the one side of the career and you had to think quickly and, and, and strongly about the, the future? Yeah, I, I, I don't think that I really went through that, um, like thought process. Um, mm-hmm. I think the biggest thing was how am I going to get money? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, all of a sudden I've lost my employment and there's no means of recourse there. Uh, so I had to pivot really quickly and I, I tapped into my network and I have ended up at a law firm in Canberra, which I'm really enjoying and they're really encouraging me to go into sports law work, which I feel like really fortunate to have landed there. Um, But, you know, I do step back and you see more and more women are taking time out of the sport to have children. And while that's not my situation, it's still time away from the sport and they're coming back and a good mate mate of mine, um, she's had two years out of the sport, uh, just she was feeling super burnt out and um, retired in end of 2021, Ruth Winder, or Edwards now, um, mm. and she's coming back two years later with Human Power and Health, and I have no doubt that she will be on the podium in 2024. And I also know what I'm capable of, and I still know that I'm young enough, and if I decide to put my racing head back on, I, I do believe that I could go back and race in Europe and have an impact in Europe. That's just not where my motivation and my passion is right now. Ooh, I like it that you're just keeping that door just slightly ajar. I, I really uh, but I also like decided that. not to go through it. Yes. Um, <laughs> so you're finishing your law degree. Does this also mean, is there is there any motivation from you, Chloe, to act as a, a sort of writer agent, writer manager? Because no doubt having that law uh, and sports law, as you just said, behind you would be a huge benefit to, to, you know, cyclists and, you know, let's say, let's say it in particular, women cyclists. Yeah. Uh, look, you know, I actually had a rider manager reach out to me, um, when it was all unraveling, not to try and find me a team, but to offer me a job, um, which I really appreciated that. And he was a great, uh, like mentor and we were able to have some really great conversations but when I stepped back and I thought, how do I have the biggest Im- positive impact for the most amount of people? It's not being a rider agent for one, two, three, four, five riders. It's being a, an advocate for all athletes. So while uh, probably a few years ago, if you had to ask me, I would have said, yes, I want to be a rider agent. Uh, no, I, I want to go into athlete advocacy. I want to, you know, fundamentally change how athletes perceive their position in the sport um, and en- enable them with more power to essentially get better outcomes for them, for themselves. And, yeah. And so I guess that leads me into the, you've led me into the next question because we've got the, and, and I'm talking specifically women's pro cycling. We've got, and correct me if I'm wrong, I could get the, the names wrong here, the titles, Cyclist Alliance, um, which is set up. And then we've got the the one that was set up by the UCI is at the CPA. Um, I think that's what it is for the men. So, but you've got the Cyclist Alliance that the UCI won't recognise, but they're doing some great things because I've sort of followed them. 
where, how do you see all this sort of unfolding over the next, you know, three to five years with women's cycling? Because it is exploding. I think it is. I think it's, it's going in a really great direction. And, you know, I'll say partly due to ASO finally getting a women's TDF back up and running and in a really good shape. But how do you see it? And how, you know, where does it need to go? Because yes. if the Cyclists Alliance aren't recognised by the UCI, there's always going to be a, a bit of a problem, isn't there? I think that this is a fundamental misconception that's taken over cycling in that you need to be, as a union, you need to be recognised by the governing body. Actually, who you need to be recognised by is the athletes. They're the ones that have the power. If the athletes decide that the road conditions aren't safe and don't race, there is no race. Mm. Um, so I actually think that women's cycling is in a very strong position because their union isn't linked to the UCI in a negative way, whereas the CPA is. Um, I yeah. spoke to somebody quite high up in the world players uh, movement and when, you know, my team crumbled around me and I felt like I had no support and he said that there was a perception that the CPA was um, too close to the UCI to the point of corruption. Well, so they're set up in the a... same town, aren't they? <laughs> I mean, let's just call it what it is. Yeah. And that town is very small. We've been there. We've, we've, <laughs> I've been to this very small town. They're literally yeah. next door. They're yeah, just no, down the road. I mean, that's this isn't a word of lie, yeah. I do think, you know, the CPA, they, they actually, which is the Men's Professional Road Racing Union, so it's very narrow, they mm. just released a CBA, a collective bargaining agreement, and the agreement achieved very little for their riders. They actually, if you um, adjust the minimum salary to inflation, they took a pay cut um, to what the CBA was previously. Um, and in comparison, the women don't have a CBA, so they're in a position where they can try and negotiate either with the teams or the race organisers or the UCI to get better outcomes for their members, for their riders. Um, where, we're where I think cycling is really falling down at the moment is that you don't have the buy-in from the riders. So we, mm -hmm. there's a disconnect there in riders understanding how powerful a union that they're members of can be. And, um, you see the need for it in, uh, I always get his name wrong, David Lapia. Lap Maybe La you can help me. Lapia. Threatening riders, threatening cyclocross riders this week um, mm -hmm. and saying, if you don't participate in this race, we won't let you race in the next one. That's a direct threat from your president of your world yeah. governing body. I would it's be worried cool. yeah. and I would be turning to my union. Yeah, absolutely. Did you did you at the time uh, have a feeling, or maybe you know, uh, that the for example the male riders that fell through the the BNB uh, BNB hotel team were they treated differently than than the women's rider? Like someone like uh, Audrey Corton Rago has been very vocal about it, uh, despite everything that has happened to her. This was also something that has happened to her. Uh, was there a difference between the, the the male riders and the, the female riders, or did you all unite and were all in the same? I can't say it, but the same boat, I would say. From my perspective, I I feel like we were all in equally shit positions. <laughs> so <You said> it. <laughs> it was yeah. it was so late in the season for anybody to find a contract that, you know, adequately reflected their value in the market. Um, and uh, to the defense, to the CPA's defense, they did get legal counsel in for the men, 
and he is taking that legal counsel they brought in. He is taking a case to the French Compensation Court. Um, so there's potential that we'll have a portion of our contracts honoured, but the B&B hotels or paracycling are fighting the, um, the like the cause of action. So uh, the one thing that I did, but it might just be me getting up in my head, I did feel like my career mattered less and like the women that people cared less that a women's team was also affected. Um, I guess it might have been because of the personalities that were impacted on the men's side. You know, you had the Mark Cavendishes and the Pierre Rollins of the world. But I'm also very proud of my career and I don't feel like it was one that um, should have come to an end as it did. Um, so, yeah, I think that that was probably the biggest. Um, yeah, oh, you're right. You're right. <laughs> I agree 100% yeah, with with what you're saying, Chloe. It's, mm. it, let, you know, yeah. It, 100%. It's, yeah, it's... Let's look positively now. Let's talk about uh, what's happening now. Yeah, we've the got future. all the crap like, out of the way. Got let's, all this... <laughs> let's talk so good stuff. If you're still with us in this podcast, uh, we're now going to talk about it positively. Uh, Chloe, you've got your name on a brand, on a on a on a bike brand. Uh, how much of this is a is is a dream from from the, the the younger rider you were to one day have your your family name your family name on the frame? I mean that's a that's a dream of a lot of people. But you've you, you're you're doing it as as we speak. Yeah, you know, I think like so much of my career, it wasn't actually, you know, I never dreamt of being a professional cyclist. It was just something that happened. And uh, husking bikes is something that as so many businesses come, it was an idea, a conversation, and then a recognition that this is a need in, in our market, in our industry. There's so few women recognized or represented at those upper echelons, you know, of the sport. And we talk about needing more women and more exposure to, of women racing, but it needs to be um, representation of women industry-wide. And I think until that happens, there's a real lack, like the market is will not cater for women. And I still feel like we're very much at the margins. You know, you see a lot of mm. the advertisement is for the uh, tall, skinny, white male. And uh, there's a lot of people who ride bikes that that is not them. And that's what that is who mosking bikes is for people who just want to ride bikes and enjoy it. I know, Maka, you looked at me when she said skinny. <laughs> <laughs> yes, skinny white male. Is is there a part of you? I guess you know, in any business, you have to think unemotionally as well. You know, for a business, you know, we all if we start a business, we want it to be successful financially, etc. So, is there a part of you though that one day you want hosking bikes to be? in the pro peloton, you know, sponsoring a team, like how good, how, and that would be great, wouldn't it? To, to be at the Tour de France. Yeah. I mean, obviously, and you know, we're already speaking with American, uh, criterium teams, uh, about having them riding our bikes next year, but ultimately, you know, we, we understand that there's different, uh, people to be catered to in the market. And we really want to focus on the, the people who are just getting into cycling, who are looking for their first or their second bike, who want to enjoy like what cycling can offer. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of high-end bikes that are already meeting that world tour market, um, but there's other people that are being ignored. And, uh, you know, I want to try and make cycling a more inclusive and welcoming place. So that's our focus now. <laughs> 
And I know we can't reduce it to the color, but you've got really good paint jobs on them. They look amazing just for that paint job alone. Yeah, well, I mean, it's 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 my brand. And uh, I think if you know anything about my career, you know it hasn't been a quiet one. And um, so our bikes will never be quiet. We, we, will, um, we will make world-class bikes accessible and we will never sell a black bike. Yeah, and Aussie, <laughs> Aussie loud, Aussie uh, loud and clear. Yeah, we can, <laughs> we can hear you from uh, from the other side of the room. <laughs> uh, let, let's talk about this career. Actually, uh, you you won uh, uh, La Course, uh, and you're the, the first winner of La Course on the Champs Elysees on a uh, let's say on a rubbish weather. I think it was. And can I can I add to it? And I like to say this because I think it's pretty cool. You're the only Australian female to win on the Champs Elysees. Yep. Ever. Yeah, ever. <laughs> so when you reflect back uh, at this, uh, what's your biggest achievement? Of, 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 of Can you actually detail a singular thing, singular win or singular event that you can say, yeah, that's really worked out really well for me? I, I don't I don't want to disappoint you, um, but like this year has given me a real opportunity to reflect and yeah, I've said that I'm really proud of my career. I did win. I, I think I've won the most races out of any Australian female professional cyclist. So I have a few to choose from. But you, what I'm actually most proud of is I came home to Canberra and I launched a junior cycling bunch. And we meet every Monday at 6.30. And I can see the impact it's having on these junior cyclists in Canberra. And for me, that's probably more satisfying um i love, I love winning races but it's very selfish <laughs> no i love it that's great it's and is this it boys and girls or boys and girls yep. and um right. i'm always so satisfied when i come home like after the monday and we've had 50 50 like boys and girls 50 percent um so uh yeah we, we're and it's also been great to see their progression you know the the idea behind the bunch was to create a, a space for junior cyclists to build on their their road awareness, their bunch skills in as controlled an environment as you can get on the road. And um, you can really see their progression uh, from March till now. And it, it's such a buzz to start my Monday mornings that way. Yeah, there's, wor there's worse, worse thing to happen. Uh, it's, <laughs> I think coaching kids, and I've, I've done a bit of that too, Chloe, in the past, and, and we used to have a junior a school's event that my wife and I ran and, and I couldn't agree more with you. I think it was the most um, satisfaction I got out of cycling for quite a few years. Just, yeah. As long as it's yeah. not your kids, you know, when it's your kids, it's a bit harder. Uh, yeah. You get a bit more, you know, emotionally involved. <laughs> uh, I mean, it's a good segue actually, Chloe. What's your view on, on the, the, the cycling bunch today, you know, especially the, the Aussie riders uh, today, when you look at maybe just the, the, the woman's side, there's a, when we've been arguing, Makai and I, there's probably, there's a case to say Australia is probably the second nation in terms of quality riders in, in the peloton after maybe the, the Dutch. But what's your vision on, on, on the new breeder riders, the Sarah Gigante, uh, the, the Ruby, mm, I mean, uh, there's yeah. Ruby as well. Um, so what's your vision on, the, I know you know Ruby quite well as well. So what's your vision uh, on this as a, as a, maybe you're on the other side of the career? Yeah, um, it's a great question. And if I if I'm going to be brutally honest, I'm I'm worried for the future oh. of Australian high performance road cycling. 
Um, I don't see that we have huge pathways coming through and we don't have, because of that, we don't have a lot of depth and talent coming through. And uh, you saw after the Beijing 2008 Olympics, all our riders that were riding, basically all of them retired. You know, these were uh, women that had really built up the Australian national program, Sarah Carrigan, Aloni Wood, um, Alison Wright, and um, also Alexis Rhodes. And they re retired all at a similar time. Um, and I see that about to happen. Um, I think after Paris, you're going to get a lot of Australian women retire and we don't have a lot coming through. And then you ask, where are they going to learn from? Like who, where's the knowledge and the leadership that our young Australians are going to learn from if they've left the sport? And you see, it's, it's actually already happening. So it's sort of been swept under the rug, but the qualifications are in for the Olympics and for the first time since you could qualify for riders, Australia only qualified three because we're just not getting the points. We're not this is, getting... This is for the road events, for the for road the race. women's road race, yeah. Wow. And I think also the men. I'm not sure if the men got three or four, but wow. it, it's indicative of uh, the talent and coming through and um, that fostering of talent. And the sport's getting harder, for sure. You need to go to Europe earlier to yep. sort of... Um, this is a terrible saying, so maybe I shouldn't say it, but I'll say it, but to blood yourself. Um, <laughs> um, <laughs> yep, yep. And there's very little support as well. You know, it's a really big move for a young rider. I was lucky when I was 18, um, my parents gave me a return trip for my 18th birthday. And while I pretend that I worked at a restaurant to build up my savings to support myself. The reality is my parents supported me when I was in Europe for that one year and not everybody can do that. So that's part one. <laughs> and then you mm. asked me about our, our young talent coming through now. And yeah, I mean, we saw Sarah Giganti go to the Tokyo Olympics and then um, whether it was health problems or mental problems, it, it's hard to know. Um, I, I did try to catch her. I was recently in Melbourne and I know that Sarah's from Melbourne and um, I tried to catch up with her, but she was still in Europe. Um, so it's hard to know why she hasn't made that transition. I think it's now her third or fourth year in the seniors. And if you don't start to get results soon, you won't get contracts. And it, then it's just very hard to stay in Europe. Then for, for Ruby, like obviously a huge talent, we saw it in Australia, um, but s struggling to get those, you know, break onto the podium in Europe. And we did go for a ride recently and I, I just sort of spoke to her and this is where the older riders come in to try and um, mentor and guide. And as much as the young riders want to listen also, that's another thing like, you know, yeah, we see, you know, the kids, the the. People winning the Tour de France now are kids. So yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, how much mentorship can the older riders give them? I don't know. But I spoke to Ruby and I asked her, do you watch your sprints after you do them? You know, it's one of the things I've been able to do since being um, in Australia is sit back and actually watch the women's racing. And there's been a few races where I've watched Ruby in the pointy end of races in great bunches that she could have got a good result and hasn't capitalized on that. Um, and hopefully Ruby now starts watching her sprints because I don't think she did before. <laughs> it's 
but and as you know, it, it it takes time, doesn't it? And I guess just to go back to sort of, I guess, part of this question, is the answer then, well, I mean, maybe this has been the answer for the last five years or more even, how, you know, Oz Cycling, um, are, the, are they bringing up the talent? Have they got the, you know, the resources and the platforms? Maybe no, that's the answer. So is it the clubs like the Brunswick Club in in Melbourne, I'll say that one because of course Ruby and and um, Sarah and of course Plappy and I know the Brunswick Club Cycling Club well. They do a great job with their juniors. Carnegie Caulfield is another one. Um, do we need to rely on the clubs and rely on you know people like yourself and other pros that are just retiring? And we we've got to keep them in the sport so they they have some motivation and and you know get the joy that you get on a Monday by creating that. You know, is that what we need to rely on more and more? Yeah, I mean, I think I think you definitely need to be looking at our other um, talent pathways because it's just not coming from Cycling Australia at the moment. And, I mean, I, I, it is difficult for them. Like, you know, funding is limited. Um, where do you direct it? Um, a lot of it's tied to high performance, so it's hard to invest it into riders yeah. that aren't yet in that, um, that stream. But uh, the, I mean, this is where development teams are, are instrumental. So you see teams like ARA and Bridge Lane, um, they're really important for the sport and trying to get more sponsors like that on board to, to take teams to Europe to race in small Dutch Belgian races where they can get experience, where they can get on the podium and build their confidence. It's like invaluable. In a way, we need a Pacho to multiply himself. Yeah, to several Pachos. I oh, know, but do we want to do we want to hear Pacho's voice know. five times over? But I don't oh, know if you, get, if you get Pacho talking to Pacho. One, one is good. Yeah, Pacho talking to Pacho. That'd be interesting. Uh, Chloe, it's fantastic to to have you in the podcast. I've just realised the time, so you you probably need to go any minute. But she's what? heading off to the the Canberra Crit. I know tonight. I think. <laughs> I tell you what, you can't keep a good girl down. You've retired, but you haven't retired. What's going I on? Did a, I did a crit race. We have a, a women's series in Canberra and um, I have a whole new respect for people who work and also train. Um, you know, I realized since I was 18, all I did was train and then race. Um, <laughs> and now I'm working and I'm really tired. And so it's the harsh. motivation to go to races is hard <laughs> to find. But right. there was a women's series on and so I was like, I've got to go, you know. So yes. I went out and I was in the race and I was sort of thinking I could, I could just gift it, like not actually try. And then I was like, nah, they've got to. Stop <laughs> it. Make them work you know, for it. You've got to earn it. You've got to earn yes. your win. So I, I sprinted agree. and I won. <laughs> hey, and, and by the way, keep taking them, keep winning because one day, and it's no disrespect, you know it, you will get oh, slower, Chloe. Yeah, exactly. I, yeah, I know. I, 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 know. Am, I am well and truly there and beyond it. And oh, no, you know, absolutely. And that's the thing. Yeah. Like you, you keep you keep competing until you get beaten, right? Yeah. So, yeah. Um, and it it's also the way of um, helping to you know let people in Canberra get well a world class experience as well. Yeah, absolutely. It's been a pleasure to have you in the podcast. Uh, thank you, Chloe. Uh, Thanks, to, Chloe, to join us. Thanks, guys. So that was Chloe Hoskin with us. Uh, it's always good to have someone that talks frankly about things. And yeah. this is what we got. Yeah, know. absolutely. And 
look, she's had the experiences. She said she's, you know, had a long career as a pro, huge success, plenty of World Cups, and of course that Lacourse victory. Um, but she's also got knowledge and mm-hmm. an opinion on, you know, the business of the sport and where it needs to go. And I think she's, uh, as you said, Christoph, it's, you know, she's a straight shooter and yeah, it's really interesting how she said she's concerned about the, well, the there's pathways. no sugar coating. This is the thing. And we, we, we're not going to recap the podcast now, no, but, but it's, it, it there's is, no sugar coating. And, yeah. and it's, it's one of the first person that we've got on the podcast here that actually say this. <laughs> yeah. And, but the funny side of it is, and we sort of ran out of time because I would have loved to have delved mm. sort of more into it. But the interesting thing is, and if you go back to the women's TDF this year, 2023, remember during the men's, the women's teams weren't announced yeah. as yet. Yeah. And we were concerned. We we're like, oh, how many Aussies are going to be on the, the, the start list? And we thought, oh, gee, maybe at best five. And then we suddenly had 12, yeah. mm-hmm. 12 Aussies. Mm-hmm. And none of us could have picked that. Gracie Elvin, yeah. you know, who's still sort of, you know, got a ears, ear close to the ground in the, in the women's sport. And of course, with the Aussie women, she said, I wouldn't have known that. So I wonder if we're just, you know, we, we say in Australia, we have for so, so long, and it's still true. We grow junior world champions on trees. Mm-hmm. They fall off trees. Yeah. We just somehow breed junior world champs. And the challenge is keeping these young riders to then, you know, have long, successful careers, hopefully. But not all of them want to either. Do, do you put it down to funding, first of all, and the fact that a lot of that funding in cycling goes to the track? Because we discussed well, it so many times. Well, Chloe it, said it, high yeah, performance. Yeah. This is the, what's, what's called the high performance. Yeah. It goes to the track because you can equal dollar how long have we got? Yeah. <laughs> and you know I'm going, to, going to Christmas. Oh, you know now. I'm going to beat my chest <laughs> over this. No, and I mean, look, she's right. And I keep referring to what Chloe said because we're sort of going over it, but I think it's important things to discuss. It is hard. And also you can't just suddenly we can't just blame our cycling for, mm. you know, not setting up this, not setting up that. They've got limited money, absolutely limited money. Um but I say they should flip it. I say my opinion is they should actually go away from high performance and they should pump a lot more money into grassroots. Yeah. Absolutely. And eventually that grassroots platform will grow and grow and grow. And then the the talent will rise right up to the top. Yeah. But you know, it's easier said than done. And it's easy for me to sit here, you know, in an SS studio <laughs> and, and and say that. You know, you've got to want to go out there and yeah. and do that. So it's it's a tough gig. Yeah, let's talk about uh, the uh, the the rest of the world of cycling right now. Uh, as we are, uh, there's few news happening. Uh, first one is we've learned yesterday that the Tour de France 2025 is back in France for the Grand Départ. It will be in the city of Lille. We've been there. The last time we've been there, my friend, we had a COVID podcast, but you bought a bike. <laughs> you bought I a bought, bike over there. I bought a 650 mil, uh, 650, what are they called? Well, size wheel yeah, Peugeot remember. bike. <laughs> For 90 euros, uh, it acted as a prop for the stage across the Parve. Um, yeah, Lille, 2025. Yeah. yeah, I think it's good. And, and eventually, you've got to, you've got, you've got to bring it home, like yeah. as in the start. Yeah. And they always do. They do a big start everywhere. We know that. And that's why it's called. But you know what it means, though. It what? means cobbles. It probably means cobbles. It means it means a stage somewhere. It in means cobbles in the first few days. Yeah, exactly. You would think. Yeah, you would think. Absolutely. You? Yeah. But there's a whole one to deliver before this in 2024. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. Let's not good, skip they, too far ahead. They're good. Uh, so to, you know, like this is the area where 
there is probably not so much happening in the world of cycling right now. Yeah. Like, you know, it's the inter-season, as, as we call it. But then they keep the news coming in. So we keep, you know, in this podcast, until yesterday, 24 hours ago, we were not going to talk about the Tour mm. de France. Oh, mm. yeah, so yeah. look at us now. We are talking about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it is. It's, it is. It's, they've always, they're constantly ahead of the curve. Yeah. ASO. And as I think I said, two pods ago or one pod ago, you know, there's part of me that thinks they should run the sport. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Anything yeah. else? Gee, I think, I, I think that's pretty I'll much... tell you what, we covered most things. Yeah. Um, hey, everyone, get out and buy, buy a Hosking bike. <laughs> if you're onto your second bike, go and get one. That's and, what I and say. It's not, it's not a plug. Uh, it's not a plug, <laughs> but good on her if uh, she's out there having a go. And Is she didn't even dream? Would you, would you have wanted to have your name on a bike? Oh, you it was it was actually perfect how you started that because it's it's so true and I didn't think that there's Eddie Merckx yeah Eddie Merckx bikes Christoph in the eighties in Australia were wow yeah absolutely and you, you but you know how people would go get their Eddie Merckx frame a lot of Australians they would fly to Belgium they would go to the the factory Eddie was there okay he was there <laughs> this is true. Because it was such a big deal to get an Eddie Merckx frame. And this was when frames were all custom. They mm -hmm. were all steel. They were all custom. Um, you know, and it's Moser. Moser bikes. I remember we, Copy was also a yeah, big Greg brand. Le Greg Lemon. Yeah, Greg Lemond. Chris Bowman. Yeah. So uh, <laughs> all, the, all the, but it was when the custom ones were the, you know, when, when it was only custom frames, I should say, and steel. That was when it was wow. If you if you could produce your own bike, but even now in this day and age, it is yeah, a big deal. And what other women, females, have their own bike brand? Yeah, there's Liv, but there's a there, well, there's that's not, giant. Yeah, there's, there's it's they're specific. That, so. That's a specific that's female. Specific, yeah, but I'm talking about a, 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 a well, an ex cyclist or I former cyclist. There is anything. I don't so think there is. Is a, there? It's a it's this a first cool. in the world. Absolutely. Yeah, good on her. Thank you, Maka. Thank you very much. 